Listener Production. If you tuned in to watch this year's federal election night coverage, even for a few moments, you would have seen a sea of teal. All the political commentators could talk about was the wave of centre-right independents who had claimed previously safe Liberal Party seats. In fact, unless you had paid very close attention that night, you might not have realised which party had actually won government. At the centre of those shifting political winds was Allegra Spender, former businesswoman and now the member for Wentworth, which is a seat that covers some of Sydney's wealthiest suburbs. Spender comes from a high-profile family. Both her father and grandfather were MPs and her mother was the late fashion designer Carla Zampatti. But who is this political star who seemingly came from nowhere to win one of conservative politics' blue ribbon seats? What does she stand for? And what does she want to achieve from the crossbench position she now holds? My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Bron will be jumping into the hot seat and we'll have The Weekend List where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with Allegra Spender MP about climate change, tax cuts, gender equality and political integrity. Allegra Spender, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much, Jamila. It's delightful to be here. Look, I imagine a bunch of our audience would have heard from you or seen you on the news in the last year or so, and they'll have little bits and pieces of who you are, but I'm hoping today we can start to put that puzzle together in a more complete way. I'm going to start right at the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were like as a child? Were you the kind of kid in primary school who people were like, oh yeah, politician in the making? (laughs) No, I don't think so. I was really frankly a nerd. I absolutely loved reading books. Um, I really loved school, but I was always pretty shy. And I think actually some of my friends from school were really surprised um, that I did this because because I was was pretty shy and you know frankly I'm I am more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. What do you think it was that made you more of an introvert? Is that something that you can see when you look to your own family? You can see that that's an inherited trait, or was there something about the way you grew up that perhaps made you someone who was more comfortable retreating? Look, I think it's because I always like to think things through, and and I think again that's sometimes a challenge in politics because you're 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 kind of meant to be someone who has a, an immediate response to absolutely every single situation. And my my instinct is actually to try and think quite carefully. But once I've come to a view, um, I ho- normally hold it with quite a high conviction. I don't think that's so much an introversion, extroversion thing. It's mm. probably more just um, my personality. I think my mum, again, was an introvert, even though she was a very social person. She was really, and and quite a public person. Um, she, you know, you, Introverts just need time to themselves to reflect. And I think that's really the sort of person I am. But I was just, I think I was just a shy kid. My sister was always the exuberant one and the one who, you know, talked to anyone. And it's taken me probably 44 years to get to that. (laughs) Your mum was, of course, the incredible fashion designer, Carla Zampatti. And we're going to come to fashion in a moment. But you're also the daughter of a formal liberal politician. So I imagine that meant politics played a role in your life pretty young. Were you someone who grew up having debates around the dinner table? What was your relationship to what your dad did? He was in politics when I, from when I was two to when I was 12. So it was quite a big part of when I was a little kid. 
my most vivid re- memory is um of his time in politics is going door knocking with him once and me being like so embarrassed and him sort of walking <laughs> up to the front doors and me basically sort of hanging out by the gates um, of, of the path, garden path we were walking up. Um, and then the other thing that we did in those days is, um, you know, send out a lot of letters to constituents. So we had like these races at home where we were trying to work out how fast you could stuff an, a letter into an envelope. That was the other memory of being in politics. Um, and look, it, it did mean that we were, look, the whole family's always been interested in probably like, um, you know, politics or just the broader world. I think we're always a family who has been, uh, who's always talked about what's going on, you know, whether it's in business, whether it's in in politics, in overseas, locally. So I think that's, that's probably something that definitely came from dad. He was all, he's, you know, he's always had a love of history, a love of understanding the world and, you know, what is your place in it and how do you actually make it better? Yeah. Uh, you worked as a management consultant and an executive before going into politics, including as as managing director of your mother's fashion label. Tell me about that transition from business to politics, because we tend to point to perhaps some almost stereotypical paths into politics, mm-hmm. right? You get a lot of people who've been staffers before, a lot of people on the labour side, for example, who've been unionists before. Yeah. Business roles are there, but perhaps not in the numbers we might expect. Have you found that you can see what you've learned in your previous careers useful now? Look, I think really useful. Um, You know, I've had a really varied career. So I started out in consulting. I worked in the UK Treasury. I worked for a big UK teaching hospital, a public hospital. I've worked in Kenya in development. I've worked, run a fashion business and I run an education charity and being the chair of a renewable business. So frankly, I've got a cool, like, you know, there's no career, it's a very strange career path, but in some ways I think it's, I think the diversity is really helping me in politics, Mm. particularly um, as an independent, because as an independent, you have to have a view, your own view on everything. And, you know, having had a wide career, I think is pretty helpful. It comes back to the, I think, the point that I like to see that the parliament really reflects the people. And so I think there's a wonderful, you know, I think it's great that some people have got, you know, strong um, political backgrounds. But to be honest, I think we should also have, um, we should, you know, have probably even more strongly than we have now is a better reflection of of the lives and the diversity of, of lives that people in the community have, because I think then we will be more representative. And I don't think, honestly, there are enough people with strong business experience in in Parliament, because you know, when you run a business, um, you know what, you know, you, you're very aware of some of the challenges of running a business. And I think, you know, when you're in politics, it's easy to, you know, say, hey, you know, business should do this, we'll make the law. Um, but when you're trying to run the business, you say, say, well, look, how am I meant to do this? Or that actually doesn't work for my sort of business. Or you're telling me to do this, but you're telling me to do that. And I actually can't do both of those things at the same time. You know, if you don't have those people who have lived experience of being in the community in politics, then you're always basically telling people how to be without um, that lived experience. And so I, I believe in diversity in so many different ways in parliament and absolutely bringing business experience, given so many people work in business, I think is critical. It was at the end of 2021 when you declared that you were going to run as an independent candidate for Wentworth in the 2022 election. Tell me about what was happening for you before that. Tell me about how you made that decision. What kind of process went on for you? Uh, That was the hardest decision I think I've ever made um, because 
I have young kids. Mm. I used to have an Italian passport. I had a job I absolutely loved um, running an education charity. And I initially, you know, I was approached by the community and initially I said no, um, but I couldn't let it go because I felt that change needed to happen. And I believed that it was possible, not necessarily would happen, but I thought it was a really, there was a chance it could happen in this election. I talked to a lot of people who I um, you know, really rated, actually, so friends and family, um, but also people like um, John Daly, who used to run the Grattan Institute. I said, John, look, you know, I've been approached by this, you know, tell me I'm crazy. And he said, uh, Allegra, let me send you this report that I'm about to release. And on page 60, it was about gridlock and it was about the fact that there isn't, hasn't been real reform in Australian politics probably for the last 20 years. Mm. And he, he's, one of his key solutions was, he thought that there needed to be more independence. It's like, oh God, John, if you think, you know, man, I really respect in terms of your thinking about Australian life. If you believe um, this is really important, I don't know, I can say no. And then for me, the nail in the coffin was lead up to COP26 because it became extremely clear, you know, just in those last few weeks before COP26, and that's when I made my final decision, that the government was of the day was going to do absolutely nothing meaningful. And I just mm-hmm. thought, look, if the government's going to do nothing meaningful, yeah, I just felt there's such an obligation to do whatever you can to change that. And that's really, that was kind of the nail in the coffin. And and I think the other one, I think for me, was also very much about being a woman. Um, I thought a lot about the fact that we didn't have women in politics. We've had such a terrible culture. And, you know, I, I watched that doco, Strong Female Lead, about Julia Gillard's experience. And you go, how can, you, again, same thing. It's like, how can you stand by when, it was so toxic for women. And, and, you know, the only way to change that is actually to change things from the top and change the balance. And if that, if, you know, if, if, you know, in this case, the coalition wasn't going to do anything about it, well, then, you know, you just have to force it. And that's what I decided to do. You were one of a number of so-called teal independents. <laughs> I'm not offended by the term, don't worry. <laughs> uh, good, I've got to be careful. And I think the media loves that, right? And, you know, we like to be able to group people in together yes. and to say that there's something happening here. Um, and sometimes that's imposed by the media and sometimes that's what's actually happening and sometimes it's somewhere in between. How do you kind of reconcile that idea of having been grouped together and to some extent uh, working together, being funded by a similar source during the campaign, but then finding genuine independence to be able to make your own calls once you're in the parliament. The truth is that I really did not work with the other independents during the campaigns. I had mm. met a couple of them, um, but you know, I, I know that we were painted very much as a pack. But to be honest, I completely ran my own campaign. We did talk to the other campaigns to learn from them, but I never ever consulted another independent on my policy positions. And actually in the parliament, we're probably more collegiate. And it's not because we're a party, but because I'm interested in, you know, intelligent people's views on competition. And that's true of the independents. It's true, but it's also true of the the major parties as well. If you're an independent, you can actually work with whoever, including the other independents or the so-called teals, who I have to say are an absolutely fabulous group of women. And from that point of view, it's an absolute joy to work with them, but we don't agree on all things. And that's good. You mentioned earlier that gender was something you were also thinking about in terms of making that run for Wentworth. And I think there were a lot of people, but particularly women who over the last few years have looked at the Australian parliament and allegations that have been made about what's happened in that place that have been really alarming and really distressing. Uh, It's not just the parliament though. We know that there are 
issues of sexual harassment and sexual assault in workplaces all over the country and the Respect at Work legislation is going to be making its way through the parliament over the coming months. Do you think making some changes about the obligations employers have will be enough to stamp out sexual assault and harassment in workplaces? It will help. But the honest truth is I believe we need a culture change. And Mm. the thing I probably focus most on is how can we change the way that we raise children, the way that the expectations we have in terms of caring, the sort of very, I think, male and female stereotypes that still are sort of permeate Australian culture. You know, we have one of the most gender segregated workplaces in the world where women are most in certain careers and men are in most in certain careers. And I think that speaks to the fact that Australia thinks of itself through this very gendered lens. And I think the, the probably the strongest way we can change that is actually through men being more involved in ch- raising kids. It's one of the great joys of life is raising children. It's also extremely tedious, boring and exhausting, you know, and I think that it should be shared around. Um, and so I've been a really big driver in, in relation to parental leave. Um, but the key piece about parental leave is that having at least six weeks, that is use it or lose it for the second partner. Because I think if we start to change the culture of childcare, of how men and women are responsible in their their roles in society and in families, then we can start to change these these stereotypes of power of who does what, you know, of economic power, because part of this is also about economic power and part of this is is about physical power. So I think it's a combination of things. I think the respect at work legislation is absolutely crucial, but it's not enough. I think we also need to change the cult, our culture in terms of how we we raise our kids. And, and it's also around things like the um, Chanel Contras' work around consent and education because it's what is expected and what are respectful relationships. So I don't, you know, like, like any major difficult problem, there's no silver bullet, um, but I think it has to come down to, you know, you know, the work, the legislations, their education and a change in terms of how we raise our families. Let's talk about some of the economic implications because we're in particularly fascinating but also worrying economic times. We're seeing a a global slowdown and watching parts of the world move into recession fairly rapidly. Things look uncertain here in Australia. We've got very low unemployment and yet at the same time we're not really seeing wages go up in any meaningful way yet. Are women a solution, at least in part, to the problems that businesses are now facing when it comes to not having anyone to hire? We've got both a skills crisis and a, and a labour crisis. Are, are women part of fixing that? And what are some of the other solutions? Look, absolutely women are. Australian women are some of the most highly educated women in the world. And I was actually looking at research yesterday that was saying until people have children, um, men and women you know, from econo- have much more economic parity then women have children and then women had after five years like a 55% drop in terms of earnings. So there was, and it's a permanent impact in terms of um, earnings. So helping women be economically involved is absolutely crucial. But I think you can do this in a way that's actually good for men's mental health um, and good for child development. And that's why we need men more involved in parenting and actually men much more involved in that parental leave because that's a critical time to build relationships with kids, build confidence in your own parenting skills and then build from there. 
Speaking of raising and spending more money or quite the opposite, uh, the stage three tax cuts are legislated. They are not something that's before the parliament right now. They're legislated, but they haven't come in yet. They're something that lies ahead of us as a country. And certainly over the last couple of weeks in the lead up to next week's budget, there's been a lot of conversation about whether or not handing out a large scale tax cut which will flatten our tax system and give significant advantage to wealthy Australians is the right way to go. It seems like the pressure might be mounting on the government in this space. What's your call? Look, I've said that we need a tax review and I think we need to look at tax at at a whole. I don't like the stage three tax cut debate because I think at the moment it's quite a divisive debate. It's saying, you know, it's pitching rich against the poor and, you know, it's it's actually trying to create a sort of division, I think, in Australian society. The truth is that the government has a range of options if it wants to raise um, more revenue. It could look at the super profits being made by the gas companies and the coal companies right now when we've got a war in Ukraine and that's driving up prices over there. It could look at you know carbon pricing, which would be a much more efficient way of making sure that we decarbonize. It's going to look at a range of options and that's what I think we should do. I think if you put a range of options on on the table, then you can say, well, this is the impact in terms of equity and equity is absolutely important. But also growth is also important. And I think one of the things that is lost about, um, you know, in this stage three tax cut debate is that, you know, Australia is one of, um, gathers more money from sort of personal income taxes than almost most OECD countries. And the truth is that's not actually very good for the economy um, because it does stop the same incentives to try and uh, for work. And also, you know, it's, I also believe that this is people's money. Like it's, we have to be thoughtful if we're saying, you know what, you do, you know, we're going to take it. I think we need to look at all options and we may want to review our t- income tax system, um, but I think we should consider, you know, all the options on the table rather than just have this being, you know, seen as the only option. Look, we are sadly, rapidly approaching the end of our time together, but I cannot let you leave without asking you about integrity in politics. This was another key area of the policy platform on which you ran. And we're now starting to have a more detailed conversation about what a federal integrity commission could look like, particularly because we are now seeing the draft legislation from the government. You haven't had that long with it, but what do you think? Look, I think that the government has done a really good job, almost perfect, just needs a little few tweaks. And so I firstly want to say that, you know, the Attorney General has been incredible in terms of engaging, I think, with the crossbench really effectively. And, you know, so has, for example, other ministers like Chris Fallon. So credit to them um, to seeing the opportunity of actually working together and making things better by working together. Um, The reason why I think it's good is because anyone can say, I think this is a potential corruption. You know, that is really important. Um, so referrals from anywhere, it means um, it's a wide remit in terms of who is covered. So it's not just a politician or this person, it's a wide remit of public servants and, and actually contractors who are covered in corruption uh, in this work, which is absolutely tick. You know, it's retrospective. So not everything's done in the past is in a black box. If we think there's corruption in the past, you know, we can um, deal with it. Excellent. Um, the fact that it's, you know, we look at um, serious or systemic corruption, so it's an appropriate focus on what's really important, but they can have what, get some investigations going first to work out if this is serious or systemic. So these are really, really positive um, uh, pieces. I think the weaknesses of the bill, are firstly, in terms of public hearings, um, they have said that it will only um, have public hearings when there is both public interest and exceptional circumstances. I think that is too high a buy. 
uh, bar, sorry, um, because if you just have it um, public hearings when they're in the public interest, like they do in New South Wales, you only get about 5% of hearings that are public, mm. you know, so not many hearings are public and, you know, there are appropriate, I think, um, controls to ensure that people's, you know, reputations aren't broken or, or you know, unbesmirched. So I think that's probably the biggest area that I think isn't, isn't quite right. I think there needs to be some work done on the committee balance so that it's a true multi-partisan committee um, with that final casting vote from the chair. So I think you need to look at that. And the final piece is looking at third party investigations and it, it's remit there in third parties. He's got, they've gone a long way. I think they need to go slightly further. But on balance, I think the government has done a really good job and mm. I'm, I'm going to be very supportive of the legislation, but we need to make it that bit better. It looks like it's possible that both major parties may end up <laughs> Uh, supporting this legislation. How important do you think it is that there is broad support across the parliament for legislation that is essentially about the parliament governing itself, right, and ensuring that the behaviour of those in power, uh, particularly in government, is of the highest possible standard? It's absolutely ideal if we can get everybody on board, but I don't think the government should make too many concessions just to to get the coalition on board because I think really this comes, it's not about the parties, this comes back to the community. And this was one of the biggest issues that my community mm. talked to me about. And we need to make sure that politicians meet the community's expectation on behaviour and that's the most important thing and that the community feels that they are able to hold politicians and the public service to account on integrity. That's that's what this anti-corruption um, vehicle must do. And and I will also say that this isn't that you know we're not done once we've dealt with this because there's donation reform that needs to be done. You know my community is aghast that Clive Palmer could spend a hundred million dollars on an election. They're really frightened by that. It's you know how do we make sure we make appointments, um, you know public appointments in ways that doesn't mean it's just jobs for the boys. And finally, political advertising. You can lie yeah. in political advertising. It's incredible. So. There's a web of integrity that we need to work on. And I think the, the more that the community voice is at the heart of this, I think the better they will be. Allegra Spender, thank you so much for spending some time with me on the weekend briefing. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for my conversation with Allegra Spender. Don't go away though, because up next, Bron and I will be bringing you the weekend list. It is weekend list time. Bron is here and she is going to be cooler than me and have some really good recommendations for you all. Bron, what can people get up to this weekend? Well, recently I went to the movies and watched Don't Worry Darling. Now, if you haven't heard about this film, you're probably living under a rock. There was so much off-screen drama that was surrounding the film. More off-screen drama than screen drama, it sounds like. I heard so much about the film and then I went into the cinema and was like, you know what, I actually don't know what I'm walking into. I don't had no idea what the plot was going to be. Honestly, the reviews are really mixed. Um, I really enjoyed it for what it was. I feel like Florence Pugh's acting was incredible. She was like probably the highlight of everything. I love Harry Styles. He was like fun to watch um, and see him in a different light. Uh, Florence Pugh's acting, I think, was really the main thing of this film. It's set in the 1950s uh, about Alice and Jack who live in this community called Victory. Um, It's like an experimental 
like company town that houses the men that work on this top secret project. So while the husbands go to work, the wives uh, like enjoy this life of luxury in this, what you think is a perfect paradise. Then some cracks start to show, you know, I won't give anything away. It kind of is like Stepford wife vibes at certain point, I would say, but it's just fun to go to the cinema again. Give it a go. It's in the thriller sort of category. So not everything is as it seems. Frank has built something truly special. What he's created out here, it's it's a different way, a better way. I've been waiting for someone like you, someone to challenge me like a good girl. I love that, mostly because sometimes I like to have seen a film just so I can participate in the conversations about it. <laughs> totally. I'm not necessarily going to be into it and that is one of those. I'm going to take as about a different tone as we possibly could, Bron. I want to recommend a new podcast from The Guardian which is called Ben Robert Smith versus The Media. So this podcast is exactly what it says on the tin. It's a series about Australia's most decorated living soldier. His name is Ben Robert Smith. Um, He was awarded the Victoria Cross for his action saving Australian troops in Afghanistan. Several years ago now, the Fairfax newspapers printed some articles about him that accused him of war crimes, essentially. They didn't name him, but they made very clear that was who they were talking about. And Ben Robert Smith has since declared that he was the person they were talking about at the centre of those articles. He is suing. He is suing three of the country's most trusted newspapers for defamation over the articles. Whatever the outcome of this case, what it means for journalism and what it means for the reputation of Australia's military and particularly their special forces, our special forces overseas and um, also just for this man who was held up as a modern-day war hero is going to be – it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, I should I should declare that I uh, write for the one of the newspapers in, in question, not anything to do with this. It has just such a good piece of journalism, the podcast itself, right? So it's taken this step back and it has brought to life some of the court testimony. It has gone through the absolute detail of that testimony but pulled out enough of it to still be interesting as an informative, entertaining piece of content but so much that you do really get really rich detail about what – theoretically happened over there in Afghanistan and what Ben Robert Smith's role was. And I am so hooked. I cannot stop listening. My next one is on Netflix. It's called Easy Bake Battle, the home cooking competition. It's brand new. The host is Anthony from Queer Eye, who is just divine. I am obsessed with him. I really enjoy him. I think my favourite thing about him on Queer Eye is that they all work so hard and then he, he teaches someone how to cut an avocado in half and put some salt on it while being beautiful. Literally. I love him. I love him too. Um, it features uh, skilled home cooks who are competing against each other. They're trying to use kitchen hacks in this competition. So they're trying to prove like who can make the easiest, fastest, most delicious meal. It kind of is just a very mind numbing show, but it's full of joy. It's full of fun. You know, it's just so easy to watch and you can just sit back, relax and not think too hard about it. Um, and you do so, like learn some actual good hacks that you can implement really easily into your own home cooking. So yeah, if you're after something super light to unwind, then this is the perfect uh, new addition to your Netflix regime. 
I am sold, Bron. I am absolutely sold. That is a confluence of just too many of my interests. Uh, and to follow on from the baking theme, I'm going to recommend some actual baking that you can do, folks. Came across a new recipe a couple of weeks ago, which I have made religiously since for multiple people. It's on Bon Appetit. It's free. It's a sweet potato tea cake. Stay with me. Stay with me because there is potato in a cake, but it tastes delicious. It's kind of got pumpkin spice sort of vibes to it, but the sweet potato is somehow even more delicious. And it's quite a sort of a dense, moist loaf cake and would be quite simple if it wasn't for the fact that it is blanketed in this fluffy vanilla meringue that you bake into the top of the cake. It's like magic. It is absolutely magic. And it's just this mix of crispiness and chewiness and softness and sweetness and saltiness. And oh guys, it's so good. It's so good. You just, you got to make it and it's not very hard. You can totally do it. The hardest thing you've got to do is separate some eggs, folks. I believe in you. That's it for the weekend briefing for this week. Thank you so much for being with us. We so enjoyed having your company. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure that you follow us in the listener app or that you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel like giving us a five-star rating and review while you're there, we will not say no to that. We will be back bright and early Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Stay safe, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Listener.